Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for, and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I, of course, cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners, and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions, because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. You are listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. Uh, my name is Kirk Reed, and I do have a guest uh, in the studio this morning. I have Mr. Brian Fecto of Delaney and Muncie uh, in Plymouth. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Kirk. How are you? I am well. Uh, I am well. Um, so Delaney Muncie is a, a, an attorney uh, firm uh, in Plymouth. Uh, would you mind just introducing yourself and your firm and tell the listeners a little bit about what you guys do? Sure, be happy to. Uh, Kirk, again, my name is Brian Fecto. I'm a estate planning attorney. Uh, I work at a law firm named Delaney and Muncie. We are in uh, North Plymouth, uh, very convenient to the South Shore, and our practice has been around for about 30 years. I've been practicing estate planning for about 15 years, and we also uh, offer some other services, real estate law. Um, we handle um, some business law as well. So we're, we're a full-service transactional practice. Uh, my focus is on estate planning. Excellent. Uh, I know that we had um, uh, Alyssa, my wife, uh, and your paths kind of crossed uh, recently, uh, so that's how we came to, to meet you, um, and it's great to have you on the show. Um, so, you know, estate planning, uh, obviously an important uh, topic for everyone, um, and that's something that, you know, obviously we deal with or come across, you know, in our business, uh, something that we don't do. Uh, and so we always have to, you know, lean on professionals like yourself to help, you know, help with our clients and, um, you know, figure out those, all those things. Very complicated, uh, ever-changing. Um, and so it's good to have somebody um, that's on, on top of that. Sure. And I'll just say a lot of times uh, the estate planning conversation starts with clients meeting with someone like you. Uh, you might be looking at their whole financial picture and notice a hole. So a lot of um, a lot of our referrals, a lot of times, the first time that we'll see a client will be after they've gone to their financial planner and been told, uh, "Here's something you want to fix. Here's a loop uh, that we need to close in your in your overall financial plan." Sure, it's you know. Um you know, one of the terms that I've kind of taken away from my, you know, my father-in-law is, you know, we kind of see ourselves as sort of the financial quarterback. Uh, you know, we can kind of see, you know, see the whole the whole picture or the field, if you will. Um, 
and you know we kind of see what should be happening but when it gets down to the details you know we need to lean on you know the specialists uh to kind of fill those fill those gaps um so for the first you know segment here um you know we talked about maybe we could just talk about sort of you know what's a basic estate plan look like you know what are those documents uh you know that everybody should have um can you know, kind of go over those you know fairly high level um we can get into some details if we have time um but you know everybody should have you know a couple of things uh, regardless of your situation it's just going to make life easier for everybody uh if you have these things and you need to, need to have them ahead of time you know the, the longer you wait um you know the the more issues uh can can pop up and it's one of those things that nobody wants to do <laughs> it's not it's not fun uh per yeah. se uh but it's very very important um so you know in, in my you know in my mind you know probably the the most basic or or, or, or document that everybody should have is, is a will um that's right. Um, well, why don't we why don't we talk about basically? I think there's general consensus that everyone should have at least these three things, and then certainly uh, many people need more, and it can get more complex. But the basic plan that really anyone uh, that has a few dollars in the bank might want to think about getting. Once you're 18, you can do it. Of, of course, I don't have many 20 year olds rushing in to do estate planning. <laughs> no. and that's a good thing. <laughs> no. Nope. But um, there's two documents for incapacity that a lot of people don't think about. And why would we need a document for incapacity? This is a situation where we're, we're still alive, so our will is of no value to us. But uh, due to physical or mental or other uh, problem, we're unable to manage our life, we're unable to communicate decisions, we're not unable to handle our finances. And if we have done no planning, we could be in a situation where someone from our family or a friend or, or someone that cares is having to rush into the probate and family court and get a formal appointment as a guardian or a conservator to manage my affairs while I'm incapacitated. And that process, as you can imagine, can be expensive. It can be time time consuming, and so we want to try to head that off by pre planning. Can, can I ask, like, how how long does that take? I mean, because obviously your time is of the essence, and so what what kind of a time frame are you looking at? Right. I mean, it can be done on an emergency basis, but you know, it it can still be uh, several weeks potentially. Okay. okay. And the more anything is rushed, the more expensive it gets. Right. And so um, it's certainly far from an ideal situation if a guardianship or conservatorship is needed. So we do our best to try to head that off. So there's two documents that do that. The first document is for financial matters, and that's known as a durable power of attorney. I'm sure mm -hmm. you've seen it a lot, Kirk. Sure. Um, and in a durable power of attorney, you are appointing an agent who is going to manage your affairs for you in the event that you can't do so. So most married couples will name uh, their spouse, and that works fine, but I always recommend that an alternate be named as well, just in case the spouse has passed away or is in the same situation that you're in. And so there we get to uh, adult children, we get to friends, we get to brothers, sisters, usually someone that you would trust, obviously, implicitly, <laughs> and someone that's got some financial acumen to be able to handle you know, the administrative hassles of trying to manage someone's life, which as you can imagine, get a little bit more complicated when you're the power of attorney and not the actual person, right? Or rather the attorney, in fact. So that's the first document. And um, the second document is one that a lot of people will do on their own at a doctor's office or hospital. And that's called a Massachusetts healthcare proxy. And in that document, what you're doing is you're appointing someone to make medical decisions for you in the event your doctors decide that you're past the point of being able to make or communicate your own decisions. And so that's the famous, um, uh, to put it uh, bluntly, uh, who, who will pull the plug mm. is, is what sometimes people refer to it as, but you know, it's more than that. And uh, this is going to be the document that where you're going to name someone that you trust will carry out your wishes. And if you'd like, you can leave another document that our office and other attorneys prepared called a living will. And a living will is really just a set of instructions to that healthcare proxy where you'd run through different scenarios of medical situations and what your wishes would be. You know, would you want artificial 
uh, uh, nutrition, would you want to be intubated, all those type of things. Yeah, and I... Difficult decisions to make. I mean, yeah, it sounds, I mean, obviously sounds like it makes sense, right? It, because, uh, you know, if, if there is a healthcare proxy, you probably want to help them out a little bit, right? And be like, okay, you know, here's here's what I'm thinking at the moment, you know, when I'm of sound mind. But at the same time, who wa- who wants to think about that? And who wants to actually go through those, you know, scenarios and be like, oh, yeah, I want this, I want that. And I think I think that's probably a sticking point for a lot of folks, and that probably doesn't get done in a, lo- a lot of times. Yeah, that's right. We, we always tell our clients, uh, make sure that you discuss this with the people that you've named and give them some direction but probably don't do it on Thanksgiving Day. It might make for a uh, kind of a sad, okay, yes. <laughs> morbid uh, type discussion at the, at the table. But um, the, the, uh, the living will can be uh, very helpful in just giving a little assurance to that person that's going to have to make some very difficult decisions, which may potentially be questioned by someone else in the family. Right. If they can point to a document and say, not only did I discuss this with dad, he even wrote down what his thoughts were on these issues. I think it just makes everything a lot easier for the person that you've you've really put a lot of responsibility on. You've put him in a tough spot. I mean, it, you need to rely on other people, but you're really not doing anyone a favor right. uh, appointing them to these roles. But right. but um, but most people will be happy to do it for a loved one. You know. Uh, not not all not 100% of the time but a lot of the time you know when we talk to clients and we bring this up and like i said you know we you know we bring up this topic to our clients making sure that they have these things in place you know we you know we don't you know we're not qualified to create them for them but you know we want to make sure that they have them and that they're protected and they're covered and you know, a lot of times when we bring it up as a topic, they say, well, you know, they'll figure it out or or I don't really care. And, you know, that's understandable. Um, but it's it really is putting a lot of pressure on, you know, on your, you know, your loved ones to, to there's a and, and and at a time when they're probably, you know, they're grieving and, and they're not, you know, they're not, they're not thinking the way they normally would. And it's just. You know, if they have this ahead of time, something that they can be like, okay, I have these instructions to follow. I just have to follow them. It ma- it does. It just makes life so much easier for for everybody else. Yeah, the the planning is really not for the person doing it. It's for those they're going to leave behind or those that are going to be helping them right. towards the end of their life for right. sure. It's so it's so hard, uh, so hard. Um, so okay, uh, so power of attorney. Uh, mm-hmm. If we could just talk about that for a sec. Um, so I know that there's what's called like a like a springing power of attorney. Could you talk about that, like the difference between that and, and another type that's, of power of attorney? That's correct. So there's a, there's a, what's known as a springing power of attorney, which would only spring into effect upon the occurrence of a certain event. And so that event may be a determination by one or more doctors that, are, that you are in fact incapacitated, okay? And usually that would be done through in, in some sort of writing or it would be spelled out within the power of attorney when this document is going to be effective. Short of that event occurring and being able to be um, proved, uh, the power of attorney is of no value. The other uh, power of attorney would be an immediate power of attorney where there's no preconditions before it's valid. That's the document that I would more commonly use for my clients simply because... With the springing power of attorney, I've often found if you bring that into a financial institution, they immediately are concerned whether or not the springing event has occurred. And they're more likely to send that one to their legal department. And it's and you're more likely to be delayed before you can use it, if ever. So my thought is always appoint someone that you trust, that you're not worried they're gonna start using it before it's needed. If they were to ever do that, you, of course, have the ability to remove them or or revoke that power of attorney. But we we see springing powers of attorney. We're more likely to use the one that's valid today. So if I did a power of attorney naming my wife as attorney, in fact, even if I'm out of the country or out of the state, she could sign on my behalf. She doesn't have to prove 
uh, that I'm incompetent or that you know I'm unable to act anymore. She doesn't have to seek out doctor's letters. So that can be used for convenience even, not just for incapacity. I, it, it isn't that often, but it is available for that sure. purpose. You may have, uh, you know, if you ever purchased a house, you may have given power of attorney to a closing attorney. Right to handle uh, aspects of the real estate closing so you didn't have to go to the registry of deeds. It's somewhat similar to that. Of course, it's a broader set of powers that you've given. Right. So that in that example with the attorney, the real estate attorney, that's just a, a temporary. Uh, right. It's for, usually, is that like for a day or it's for... Yeah, it's, it's for just a, limited to that right. transaction. Just that so transaction, in connection right. with the sale of my home. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean, that always makes, you know, makes me, you know, as a, you know, financial advisor, if somebody you know, gives, presents us with the power of attorney and then, you know, to, to act on, a, you know, a spouse's behalf. And, you know, we basically, you know, we feel that, you know, if the document looks, you know, we, you know, we, we typically provide it to our custodian and say, you know, can you review this, you know, cause we're not attorneys mm -hmm. to make sure that it's, you know, everything is worded properly and that the, the powers are uh, present, you know, accurate and that we can act on, on their behalf. Cause you know, we've got liability and, you know, so we have to make sure that everything is, is in good order. Sure. And that's something, if you've ever had to use a power of attorney for a, a parent or other loved one, I'm sure you face some frustration, um, you know, if you're talking to a specific custody uh, institution, they're often not going to immediately start talking to you. They're going to want to see the document. They're going to want it faxed to the legal department. It may be a few days before they're willing to deal with you, right. but that's just a matter of everyone trying to be careful. Of course, it's always um, reason for concern, right? When someone else is trying to manage dad's finances and whether there's any, whether this is being done for the right reasons. Right. And that's why, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of, uh, you're going to have to go through some roadblocks before you can really act. But you're in a much better shape than if you are starting without even a document. Um, now, so, you know, as you mentioned, you can, you know, you can amend or revoke powers. If, you know, somebody like ourselves, you know, a financial advisor, somebody presents us with a power of attorney, how do we know that it's still, you know, in force or that it hasn't been altered in, in any way? You'll sometimes see um, institutions or people like Kirk say, not only do I want to see the power of attorney, I want some sort of sworn affidavit that this power, that this person is still alive, that they haven't revoked this document. Right. Uh, that's about the best you can do. Um, you know, we will run into a bank now and again that tries to take the position that you know we we won't deal with anyone acting under a power of attorney, which really. Um, is a difficult position for them to keep. I mean, the law, uh, there's a statute that says people can do this. There's obviously a need for it. Right. And so sometimes it can, you know, we just have to push a little bit harder. But at the end of the day, yes, they will, uh, institutions will want to make sure that they're protected. But at the end of the day, the, the document will be honored. It's, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, because when the, if a client or a client's, you know, spouse, you know, needs it, you know, they need to act on that and they need that, that power of attorney. And then for the institution or, or somebody to kind of push back, I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're already in a place where they don't want to be, right? If, if they're using it, there's something going on that's not good. And it's, it's, that's kind of the, uh, kind of stinks, you know, that they're, you know, they have to work hard <laughs> to, to actually use it. Right. Um, but there's just, everyone's so concerned with, you know, liability and, you know, that, that they have to make, you know, kind of do their due diligence to make sure that everything is legit. And, sure. And um, that's the standard. I mean, know. obviously if the, if the bank has done everything it can to verify that this is a valid document, their liability is, is lesser than if they simply, you know, someone walks out in off the street and they empty out an account it just on the basis of a piece of paper. They're going to, you know, they're going to look harder depending on exactly right. what you're trying to do as well. We do try to be, uh, you know, proactive about that in our business as far as collecting power of attorney documents ahead of time. You know, so basically whenever when we meet with folks, we mention, you know, if you have one, you know, we'd love to, you know, have keep a copy on file so that if you ever need it, we can, you know, save a step, you know, as far as you trying to find it and, and get it to us. Um, That's a great idea because we'll get those calls um, both on healthcare proxy and power of attorney. You know, dad's in the hospital and we can't put our hands on his healthcare proxy. Do you still have one in the file? And of course, we, we do. We try to have it both in paper and, you know, digital copies so we can get it out quickly. You guys have the, what is it, the, is it, are they lead lined uh, uh, files or what is it, the fireproof? Uh, 
Yes, the uh, fireproof uh, filing cabinets. Mm -hmm. We have a basement full of those. Okay, <laughs> taking up precious real estate these days <laughs> in the in the day uh, days of the cloud. But yeah, yeah I know that yeah. uh, that makes sense. So those are really the two incapacity documents, and that's that's the starting point. So. Um, you know, people think when they think estate planning, they think I don't need an, what's an estate plan. That sounds fancy. I just need a <laughs> will. But I think a lot of times when we're talking about an estate, you know, you have an estate while you're alive too, and uh, while you're incapacitated, those are the two, maybe two and a half if you count the living will documents that you want to think about. So, moving on from there, we get into the okay. Now, now I'm. You know, I, I have taken that next step that none of us want to take, but I've passed away. So what documents do I need to make sure that is managed well? And before I talk about the will, let, let's talk about something I think you probably see a lot in your business, which is there, there are ways to get assets to beneficiaries and to the next generation and to, to people you want to leave them to without even having to use a will. And I think most people will be familiar with the first one, which is simply joint titling of assets. So most married couples will hold the majority of their accounts as joint tenants or tenants by the entirety, meaning upon the death of the first owner, the second owner takes complete control over that account without regardless of what the deceased owner's uh, will says. So if I own an account with you, Kirk, at the bank, and my will said everything to my wife, and, I, and my wife walked in and said, I'd like to get control of this account that Brian had joint with Kirk, the bank would say, no, that's Kirk's account. Right. I would say the same thing. I would say, I don't know you, Brian's wife, but this is my money. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I would expect you would. Um, so before you even walk into the lawyer's office to start thinking about the will, you need to look at your accounts and just make sure, you know, see who you have named as joint owner. It's probably pretty simple. In most cases, it's going to be a spouse. But, you know, if you're single or widowed or divorced, sometimes I will see people that walk in and they might have an account joint with one son and they may have two other daughters as well. And the question I ask is, if you pass away, do you want this money to be shared among all your kids? Because legally, that money is just going to belong to your son. And some people will say, well, that's fine. He'll do the right thing. He'll share it with them. And he may. But, um, you know, if he didn't, it would be very hard for those other children to get their hands on that money. Because the law says, unless there's something in writing saying that he was put on there just for convenience and to be able to sign checks... The law would say he's the joint owner with survivorship. It's now his account. That is, yeah, that's a very good, um, you know, topic there because we we see that all the time with you know maybe maybe a single you know a client that you know is is a single either you know they're single their whole life or maybe they've been uh, widowed uh, and yeah they want to put a child on a bank account you know so that they can write a check or do whatever if need be. And there are other ways to do that, right? Besides, just, you know, because what you're, you know, what you're suggesting is, you know, putting them on as a as a joint owner. You know, so even while you're alive, if if that if your child gets, you know, sued or something, right? That's, sure. That's part of their asset. You know, that that's part partly theirs, and and that money could walk out the door. Yeah, a lot of times that's an attempt to um, avoid the having to use the power of attorney. And it, 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 from a practical perspective, it is easier, but it's a riskier way of, of doing it for the exactly the reasons that you talked about. Lawsuits, bankruptcies, yeah. divorce, all sorts of things that could happen in the child's life that hopefully don't, but could, and could render, you know, those assets are owned by him as well. And so problems in your son's life could, could lead yeah. to your assets yeah. disappearing or being depleted. I mean, I'm not an attorney, but I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> you know, I just, I get, I get nervous when, right. when somebody tells me that that's what they're doing or that they've already done. Um, I get it. You know, I, some people that's just, they feel like that's the way to go, but I don't know that they always know what the other options are or, or, or the full ramifications uh, of that. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely the case. I think a lot of people do that because it's the easy way and, and it, it does work for many. And look, 
we see the the bad situations, right? We see if you do it for 15 years, you see everything. For most people, it's going to work fine, but you just need to know the risk that you're taking. One one horror story is is one too many. Right. Um, so we're just about to take a break, Brian. Um, so um, my name's Kirk Reed. I'm joined today by Brian Fecto, uh, Delaney and Muncie, uh, state planning attorneys in Plymouth. Uh, this is a call-in talk radio show, so if someone would like to call in after the break, 781-837-4900. Uh, we are here for, so we're talking about estate planning today, but we'll certainly entertain other financial-related questions. Uh, we will be right back after the break. Are you ready to get organized? Let's consolidate those old accounts and make sure your investment strategies are appropriate. This is Kirk Reed, a certified financial planner with McNamara Financial in Marshfield. Find out more at McNamaraFinancial.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. Uh, I believe the other commercial says we've been doing this since 1990, uh, which is uh, which is crazy. Uh, Michael McNamara started the show uh, a long time ago, uh, and it's it's been going for a long time, and we're trying to continue on the uh, tradition here today. Um, I am joined in studio today uh, with Mr. Brian Fecto of Delaney and Muncie, uh, estate planning attorneys uh, in North Plymouth. Uh, good morning again. Good morning, and uh, I'll just give it once. Uh, my phone number is Please. 508-746-2200. If uh, anything I've said today is of interest to you or you want to discuss further, we also have a website. It's Delaney-Muncie.com, and that's probably the easiest way to find us. Or you can Google uh, me. Again, it's Brian Fecto. Uh, that last name is a little bit of a difficult one to deal with. It's uh, a French-Canadian name, so it's F-E-C-T-E-A-U. None of that. No, no X's that there. No X's. No though. X. No X. I think that's Cajun. <laughs> okay. I don't think my my uh, ancestors were ever down that far south. Okay. Um, well, yes. Thank you. It's great to have you again today. Uh, I'll give out our phone number, uh, the radio phone number, uh, one more time in case anyone wants to call into the show with a question. Seven eight one eight three seven forty nine hundred is the uh, the in studio phone number here. Um, so right before the break, uh, we were talking about you know. Base, you know, basic estate planning documents that everybody should have. Uh, you know, we touched on power of attorney, healthcare proxy, living will, uh, and we were just about to dive into a will. Uh, although we were uh, talking about, um, you know, titling of assets, uh, you know, bank assets. Um, so let's kind of. Uh, we'll continue with that because we we do need to cover, you know, what a basic will looks like and and why you should have one. Sure. So let's talk about. Uh, one other um, before we talk about the will, and I hate to keep putting it off, but before <laughs> I we, know, I, before can we you get tell there, can you tell that I'm gung ho to get there? I don't and, know and why. I, and but, I, guess, yeah. I guess why I'm doing that is um, at part of what we talk about over the next hour or so is that there may be more efficient ways to transfer your assets to who you want them to go to than the will. So the will is the default that everyone's heard about. They've seen it on TV, the reading of the will, and all that good sure. stuff. Yeah. But in, in many ways, if you've done your planning right, the will can be a small part of the overall um, you know, estate plan that you've put together. So we talked about joint accounts. And another one that um, so many people now have a lot of their wealth in retirement accounts, 401ks, IRAs. You also may have life insurance policies. These are all instruments where it's common um, in almost all cases, to have named at the outset a beneficiary of that account who will receive it upon your death. And again, that transfer, that beneficiary designation that you've made will supersede anything that you may say in your will. So it's very important that you look back or call your custodian or call your HR department and say, when I started this job 25 years ago, who did I name as my beneficiaries? You know, have you been married since? Have you been divorced? Have you had more kids? You may find that those beneficiary designations are stale and that could cause a, a problem, you know, that you can't fix simply in a will. So always be careful to make sure when you're talking to your, <clears throat> excuse me, financial planner or your attorney that you pull that information together as well. What most people will do on the IRAs, at least, is name their spouse, if any, as primary beneficiary. And then typically, if you have adult children, you'd name your children as the contingent beneficiary. So you've taken care of 
estate planning in two circumstances there. And so just be careful that those are updated and make sure that when you're talking to your attorney uh, who may do a great job with the documents, don't, ha- don't have your beneficiary designations working against that plan. So, okay, yes, that, that is something I knew that, you know, would come up today. And, you know, too often, you know, we're, we, so whenever we meet with our clients, you know, we have a review meeting and that's one of the topics is let, you know, let's go over your beneficiaries. And obviously, you know, if there's, if there are accounts that we manage for them, we know what, you know, we know what they are and we, you know, we will go over them with them and say, you know, you have XYZ as your primary uh, and then, you know, ABC as your contingent. And, you know, when, I don't know, 90% of the time they're like, that's great. That's, you know, status quo. Um, but, you know, I would say at least 10% of the time people are like, you know what, let's, I need to make a change. You know, either something happened or... I want to make a change for, for whatever reason. And so we do, and we can, you know, they can sign something to, mm-hmm. to make those changes. Um, occasionally they will ask us for an opinion and obviously we cannot render an opinion because that's not our, you know, that's not our area. Um, and, you know, so, so first we'll say, speak to your attorney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, 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 and other times we'll say, well, you know, we did, we did an estate plan, you know, with an attorney and, and I'll say, okay, great you know, what did the attorney recommend that you do? And they're, and they don't know, you know, either, either time has passed or it was too complicated. Not that complicated is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it may be complicated, but it was done for a reason. And, you know, the, I'm sure the attorney explained the reasons to them at the time and it was probably just overwhelming, uh, or, or time has elapsed and they forgot. Um, and so this is this is a problem, I think, um, and that there's a disconnect between what the attorney uh, wants or is recommending and an implementation. There's a, there's an implementation problem right. uh, that I see too often. Uh, not not all the time, but just just too often. And and, and again, once is too often. Um, and and I don't know, you know, I don't know how we fix that, but um, but that's why we love, you know, meeting attorneys that we feel, you know, are, are thorough and do a good job. And you know, we do have some attorneys that, when they work with a client that that is a mutual client, they send us everything. And then so we, you know, there's no, there's nothing lost in translation because uh, I feel like that happens, you know, t- t- too 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 often. I don't know if you have a yeah. comment on that. In in my practice, what I what I try to do is once the documents have been finalized, you, we've, you've come in, you've signed them, everything's been notarized, put in a neat folder. I send a three or four page follow-up letter that summarizes exactly what you did and then provides recommendations for here's how you now implement this and instructions for here's how you now implement this and the number for my paralegal that says, Kathy will help you implement this. Yes. And I oftentimes, if I know who the financial advisor is, I will copy them on that correspondence, of course, with your permission. Right. Which is true. With the client's yep. permission. Yep. But let's get that out in front of the advisor so everyone knows what we're doing here. So we're not siloed where the lawyer's doing one thing and the financial planner's doing something different and no one knows what we're really supposed to be doing. So that's um, that's very important because you can have the, uh, we're beating a dead horse a bit, but you can have the most beautifully written estate planning documents, but if the assets aren't put where they're supposed to be in those documents, it's just as inefficient as if you had nothing. Right, right, so. right. It's um, yeah, and I I don't, unfortunately, I don't have a a, a great easy fix for that. Uh, other than you know, if yeah, if you go through the time and the effort and the expense of working with an attorney and putting the estate plan together, you know, please oh please, you know, make sure that you read you know read those instructions and recommendations and make sure that they get done. And, and if you need the help of a financial advisor or, or a paralegal, you know, you know, you need to, you just need to follow up. And I think, I think sometimes it's just that, that feeling of being overwhelmed uh, by it. And, you know, you might need somebody to help you out, but you know, it's also important not to uh, do that estate planning once in 2021 and then lock it in a drawer and never think about it again. Uh, You don't need to come see your attorney every year, like you do your doctor, but if things change in your life, uh, it's worth making a call to the person that did the planning or somebody new and saying, Here, here's what I have, here's what I did five or 10 years ago. What needs to change? 
now that I've sold my house or now that my spouse has passed away or my kids are no longer minors, um, it has to be the, the, an estate plan should be something that changes with you. And uh, it's easy to say, whew, I, I, after all these years, I finally got that done and now I don't have to think about it again until I'm dead. Um, <laughs> but that, don't look at it like that. Look at it as something that you're going to come in and, and you're going to establish in a relationship with an attorney who's going to be around to, to look at that with you as things change in your life. That, that'd be my take. Can I ask you, so obviously, as you said, you know, if something changes, that's a good, that's a good uh, time to, to revisit. But can you offer sort of a generic time frame for just, you know, you know, every five years, you know, that, that you know, do you have a, a, an opinion on that? Yeah, I would say every uh, three years or so. Okay, every three years. Okay. Yeah, every attorney I talked to has a different number, and I was just kind of, you know, mm -hmm. curious. I, th I think, I'd, I'd say three to five, I think, is makes sure. sense, uh, but... Um, but yeah, most people I talk to, oh yeah, it's been 10 years or, or longer, right. or it's, you know, the, the kids were two and now they're 40. And, you know, it's just, I think that's just, right. it's just one of those things. Um, you know, actually I had a question for you that this is something that just came up the other day. I was speaking to somebody that, you know, a, a family member had passed away. Uh, you know, they were listed as, as a beneficiary. There is a trust that's involved. And uh, this was not a client. This was just kind of a, you know, a, um, a phone call and and so I was kind of offering some generic advice and, and what to do and I said well really you should be speaking to to the attorney to make sure that you're following the, the language of the trust and you know the comment was well I don't know that, that I you know that I really want to talk to the attorney that drafted the trust mm -hmm. so you know in that in that circumstance I mean for them to go find a new attorney to try to decipher and you know read through the trust uh, I mean does that make sense to you? I mean, it, it does. Yeah. I, I, people shouldn't feel like they are uh, stuck working with the person that initially drafted it. I mean, they may be retired by that True. point. True. Yep. So, um, you know, attorneys are meant to also not only do their own work, but review the work of others, interpret the work of others. A contract is a contract, no matter who's drafted it. And so, um, you know, any attorney that's practicing in this space should be able to look at someone else's documents and say, okay, he here's what this says, here's what you should be doing. And so, um, you know, even if they're not comfortable going back, maybe because they don't want to go back to dad's attorney because of the relationship mm -hmm. or whatever, they can go see someone else and get sort of independent advice on it. And in most cases, that's going to be a recommended um, okay. that they have their own counsel because they're their issues are separate from the person who's who drafted that, you right, know, years right, ago. Right. Should we talk about the will before it's <laughs> before it's ten o'clock? Sure. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we've we've talked about joint accounts. We've talked about um, beneficiary designations. But what happens if I pass away and I've got some asset that's just in my name? Where's that going to go? Well, you've probably heard before, if you, if you do not have a will, Massachusetts has what's called an intestacy statute, and that statute will dictate, depending on who you have for family members, where your assets are going to go. So if there's a, I've heard out there people say, if I die without a will, the state will take all my money. That's, that's not true. It's just that the state is going to dictate where those assets go. So it's you know probably what you would expect if you have a spouse most of your assets will go to that spouse if you have children but no spouse then the children will take it'll keep going down the line there are some strange things that happen if you have no spouse and no um, descendants no children grandchildren etc had situations where someone might die in their 60s and their 90-year-old parent ends up taking, mm -hmm. and maybe they're in a nursing home or some other situation. Mm -hmm. So that intestacy statute can sometimes lead to some results that probably would not have been what the person intended. And that's why you want to take it out of the hands of that statute by doing a will where you say, I don't care what that statute says, here's what I want to do. And the only person that you really can't fully disinherit uh, is your spouse, okay? So I also hear, you know, I have to leave things equally to my children. Uh, that is not the case. If you have a child, a grandchild, or other family member that you have issues with, they can be disinherited. Uh, it's not easy to do, and no one likes doing it, but it is something that can be done. 
And uh, if you don't do that in a will, then the intestacy statute is going to leave something to that child no matter what the issues are. So what a will is is just a you know, testamentary statement of where things are to go upon my death. And they also you also appoint what used to be known as an executor, now known in Massachusetts as a personal representative. And that's the person that you're putting in charge of making sure that that will is carried out as set forth. That's why it was an executor. They execute on the will. Mm -hmm. A will has to be witnessed. It has to be notarized to be self-proving in Massachusetts. So a will's not something yet in Massachusetts that you can simply type up on your computer and then put away in your desk. Um, it has, you have to go through some formalities to make it official and effective in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. A will is not uh, self-operative. And by that I mean, if I've drawn up a will leaving everything to my brother and I pass away, even if my brother is named as the executor in that will or personal representative, he can't take that will alone, walk into the bank or walk into Kirk's office and get access to my assets. For a will to work after someone passes away, you have to go through what is known as probate. Probate being the uh, a filing of a petition with the probate court asking for the will to be allowed and asking for that executive to be given power and authority to act on it. And that process um, takes some time as well. We talked about the conservatorship and guardianship taking some time. Um, it's going to be probably a few months before someone's really in a position to fully act on what you've set forth in your will. And so this is the... Um, this is why you hear a lot out there about trying to avoid or minimize probate. Well, isn't there isn't there a uh, a minimum length of time, like in Massachusetts, that that probate has to be open? That's right. There's a there's what's known as a one year creditor claim period. So, you know, even if your executor is able to get access to your assets and sell real estate and start dealing with accounts he or she is probably not going to be willing to fully distribute. I wouldn't recommend that mm -hmm. they do until that creditor claim period has run. And that, that's, that's 12 months. So, so technically you could, you know, well, so there's probably a few months just, just to go through, you know, yeah, talk to the court and go through that. But then, but really you should be waiting just in case something pops up and now you owe somebody some money. That's right. We'll, we'll oftentimes have the executor do a preliminary distribution um, but certainly keep what we call a hold back or some amount that's there because that you don't want that executor distributing everything out. The money disappears and then a creditor comes out in month 11 with a big claim. Now the executor is responsible for that right, claim. Right, right. So, um, so probate can be frustrating for people um, <laughs> because, you know, a parent has passed away. There may be a desire to get the house on the market right away, to get access to funds in order to pay for... It is a hot market, Brian. <laughs> right. To pay for a funeral, uh, to pay bills that are out there. And, you know, I have to tell them, well, th there's a process, and it's, it's, going to, it's going to probably take longer than you think it should. Um, because there's, if you, if you read the local newspapers, you'll see all the publications in there about a will has been presented for allowance. And if anyone objects, they can object by you know, some date in the future. And so, you know, even that, even those dates are several weeks out. So a will will work. A will will uh, get things where you want them to go, but it's not going to be as quick and easy as the joint account, as the beneficiary designation, those type of things. And, and then we can talk a little bit more about some other ways we might try to work around that probate process. Right. So, you know, so one thing you just mentioned there was, uh, it is public, right? So any, anything that, that goes through the will is public knowledge, right? That's so, correct. So if you're looking for, you know, some privacy for any reason, you know, you want to you want to take care of assets another avenue, either, you know, designated beneficiaries or perhaps a trust, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. Um, you know, so that's one quote-unquote issue with, you know, anything that goes through the will or through probate is that it is public. Um, you know, another thing, another, I think, a, kind of a misconception is that somebody says, oh, well, it's in the will, um, you know, it's going to go to so-and-so and that's great. And that's true. Uh, but 
I th- it, it it does not avoid probate, right? And I think I think people don't always understand that that anything that goes through the will, it, it it absolutely is going through probate. That's that's you know that's the whole thing. Um, that's right. I think some people um, mistake the intestacy from probate. Yes, if you have a will, that's a great first step, but it doesn't get you around the probate right. process. Right. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. it's still it's still a necessary document. Uh, but it, it's not a, it's not a cure-all. Right. Um, right. um okay. Um, so, okay on that, on the will stuff? I think we've talked about the will. Thing. All right. So, all right, we have about eight or nine minutes uh, until the next break. So, I think the next step was maybe to talk about trust. Sure. Um, so one of the ways, uh... We're going to talk about trust for a little while here, but one of the first things that people will use trust for is what we just talked about, which is to avoid or minimize the probate process. So if I am uh, single and I have a home just in my name and I don't want that home to have to go through the probate process before the, the either the home or the proceeds from its sale get to my beneficiaries, I might want to think about creating what's known as a revocable trust. And I would then title my assets, including real estate, if that's what I have, into that trust during my lifetime. And that trust will provide that while I'm alive, I'm in control. I have full access. I can spend everything in there. I can take assets in. I can, I can put assets in. I can take assets out. I'm the trustee. From a tax perspective, all income would flow through to me, so I'm not complicating my tax life by having this revocable trust. But what this revocable trust does is upon my death, I can name right in that trust who the successor will be, who the successor trustee will be, and that person can take over and manage assets in that trust after my death without needing court approval, court authority, and without all those waiting periods. Mm -hmm. So I could set up the Brian Fecto Trust. I could take my real estate, I could deed that real estate to Brian as trustee of Brian's trust. And then upon my death, my successor trustee would be able to sell that house uh, within a matter of days rather than within a matter of months. Right. And so the revocable trust, and and that can be done not just with real estate, but with any asset uh, accounts and investments. So that that transfer basically between the, you know, the... Uh, trustee versus versus the successor trustee. That's mm-hmm. basically that's a, a fairly immediate. That's transfer. right. That's effectively a you know uh, a, a stop to the lawyer's office with a death certificate and an acceptance of successor trustee document. And uh, the trust is a contract, so it spells out clearly. Okay, upon Brian's death, this person is going to slot in as the new trustee, and so you would simply be following the instructions in that trust. And you and that would be outside of the probate court. Do um, do you have any when you when you got when Delaney and Muncie drafts a trust? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any? Um, do you normally appoint one successor trustee versus multiple? Do you have a Do you have a comment on that? It it depends. I I ask for multiple. Some people say I can only think of one person right now, and I say, well, let's not not do this trust just because you can't think of an alternate. Right. But I think it's wise to, um, in some cases, appoint one with an alternate. In some cases, when maybe there's two children, I might say, well, let's let's think about appointing both of your children as successor trustees, really for just uh, you know uh, family relations. My thought being. Um, if you appoint one child as being in charge, I, I've seen that create bad blood really for no reason other than I don't like that my brother's in charge sure, of this. Sure. So one way to make sure that everyone has a seat at the table would be to appoint multiple trustees. And, and that's for checks and balances. That's so no one feels left out, no one feels slighted. You have to think about some of the logistical issues. The more cooks you have in the kitchen, yes. the more difficult it becomes to do things. So it's a every every circumstance is different. But those are the type of decisions we'll talk through on on trustees with people. Yeah, I didn't know if you know having more than one was you know it, it can complicate things. But but I understand your angle that you know it makes everybody feel included and. Right. Um, you know, for family relations, so that that does make some sense as long as everybody, <laughs> as long right. as everybody gets along, right? <laughs> right uh, exactly. Where everybody agrees. So, like, would would in that example, if you had two successor trustees 
and would they have would they have to agree or could they act independently uh, typically, you'd give them the ability to act independently with respect to more minor matters. Okay. So I would set it up so that you know, not you don't have to have two trustees sign every check. Okay. Okay. But you might have, uh, like you'd see in a business situation, checks over a certain size have to be signed by both trustees. Certainly, maybe a real estate sale, which would be a large decision, would okay. have to be made by both trustees. And at the end of the day, uh, usually those trustees are the, many times they're off, off, also the beneficiaries. So it's going to be in their interest to work it out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they just have to come to a compromise on things. Usually it's nothing too major. It might be, you know, who are we going to list the real estate with? Are we going to accept this offer or hope a better one comes in? And, uh, you know, as you can imagine, if you've got two people there making that decision, that they might not be happy, but if they might both feel included. If you've got right. one sister making all those decisions, I've seen situations where the other siblings are stewing that she's making all the wrong decisions. It's easy to blame someone when there's just one person making or, all the or not even that, but just feeling like feeling like they're they're in the dark and they don't know what's mm-hmm. going on. And like, and sometimes your mind just starts to think, well, they're you know maybe they're doing something and I don't know what they're doing. And like, is it are they are they protecting me? Are they you know giving themselves more money or whatever? And I think, unfortunately, that's the way people yeah, think that, sometimes. That does happen a lot and it can be very time consuming to keep people in the loop at right. every step of the process. And they feel like they're doing it intentionally, right. but they're not. They're just, they're just right. busy, you know, right. uh, which is unfortunate. But yeah. Um, Okay, so so a revocable trust is what what you've been speaking mm-hmm. about so far, and yeah, so one of the main advantages of that is that it avoids probate. That's right, and I think when we come back, um, I'll talk about some other uh, great things that a trust can do besides just avoid probate. But that's a good starting point as one of the first things that people look at a revocable trust for. But there are other reasons to use them as well. Sure, yeah. So we can talk about that when uh, when we come back. So. Uh, if anyone wants to call in with a question, uh, number here in the studio is 781-837-4900. Uh, my name is Kirk Reed. Uh, this morning I'm joined by Brian Fecto of Delaney and Muncie in North Plymouth. Uh, they, they are an estate planning uh, firm. Uh, we're talking about all things estate planning uh, so far this morning. Uh, we talked about you know basic documents everybody should have, will, power of attorney, healthcare proxy, living will. Uh, Then we're just kind of starting to dive into trusts, which are uh, not necessarily basic estate planning, but maybe the next level. That's right. Uh, But but they are uh, definitely something for a lot of folks to consider for for various reasons. Uh, So we'll be back uh, right after the break, and we'll uh, continue to talk about uh, trusts and other estate planning issues. (laughs) 